wanted to be in a fancy metropolitan broadcast facility where the most thought-provoking thing within view is an occasional four-car pileup on the freeway below. We like being miles from nowhere, in the middle of a vineyard that cannot be seen from the little two-lane road on the other side of that rise. Our barn has awesome acoustics and was built with hand tools over a hundred years ago. Nonetheless, we've got some really state-of-the-art broadcast technology inside. And our wine cellar wants a root cellar that is absolutely packed with wine we've collected or been given by friends. Welcome. You have just set foot on Grape Encounters Radio property, where we don't believe in no trespassing signs. But let's make this our little secret. Oh, and that wine is protected by the sweetest-looking golden retriever who dated a Doberman for a while, so don't get any ideas. me some ice skin me a peach save the fuzz for my pillow and it is time for your weekly grape encounter and we are gonna do something that we have never done before we're gonna get completely off the wine track well not completely we're gonna talk about something that has become such an important adult beverage that has so many similarities to wine that i get so many questions about but frankly you know we've never really done a serious episode of grape encounters on it and i'm talking about cider cider has become the rage across america i don't know about the rest of the world but i have somebody in here who brings a very interesting perspective to the discussion about cider because he comes from the world of wine and so we're going to really focus on the similarities between wine and cider, but you're going to get a crash course in cider, which I would tell you is wine's first cousin or maybe wine's brother. I'm not really sure. But joining me today is Eric Fleck. And Eric is a cider maker. And like I said, he comes out of the wine industry. He's worked in every aspect of wine and adult beverages, as far as I can see. Really a wealth of knowledge. And he currently is the cider maker for a company that makes a product called Bristol Cider. And welcome, Eric. Thank you. It's great to be here, David. And you brought a friend. This is so funny because when I asked you to come in, you said, hey, well, I've got a friend that's visiting right now from Portland. And you'll know he's from Portland instantly when you hear his voice because he's got that Portland accent. It's Philip Clark. And welcome, Philip. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And the reason I wanted to include Philip in the conversation is because Philip and you worked together. We right? did, yeah. At a really formative time in my career, I think. Philip introduced me to a world of beer that I had not at that point come into contact with. And speaking of world of beer, you guys, I think this is the first time that I have ever done a segment of Grape Encounters where my guests are drinking beer during the session as opposed to wine. <laughs> it's a lot easier after a very hot day, very physical day at work to drink a beer, a nice, cool, refreshing beer. And this one is particularly delicious. Good choice. And I forget what we poured you. It's the brewery's Sour reuse. Blonde. Yeah, it's Reuse. Mm -hmm. And Philip, so you're originally from the UK, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, that's not a Portland accent. Not at all. No, just north of London originally. So you were in the beer sales business, then went into cheese, is that right? Originally, when I was in England, I was in beer making and moved up to Portland and got into the sales industry there. The US laws being very different from the UK laws sort of made me choose a particular path. And I got into the sales industry. That's where I met Eric. But I went into the cheese industry briefly and in that I managed that side of 
have a business, but my wife was actually in the cheese industry. So you have a cheesy wife. I do indeed. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny because the relationship between cheese and wine or cheese and cider is so very important. But at the same time, the rules are changing really rapidly now. And the way that we pair cheese and wine together has really opened up and created a lot of flexibility that didn't seem to be there before. I think that one of the most important things that I ever heard about that relationship was from Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn Brewery in New York. And he talks about the relationship between wine and cheese as a relationship of contrasting flavors. And when it comes to cider and beer, you get a different relationship of complementary flavors between those beverages. So it allows a different sort of play on the creaminess and the sort of barnyard flavors that you'll find in cheese, as opposed to either the jamminess of a wine or you can go in the cider direction and get that sort of farmy apple and animal sort of flavors from the yeast that are used there. Yeah, very interesting. Eric? I would uh, second that. We uh, at Bristol's about two months ago, there's a local fromagerie cheese house just south of us, and we did a, an event where we paired Bristol ciders with some cheeses. We went down. It was a great research evening, and now that I think about it, everything was complimentary. We did very few contrasting flavors when it came to the pairings. It just seems like, to echo what Philip was just saying, is that for instance, we have a, a a hopped cider that is some English hops, so very delicate perfumed hop cider, and we ended up using a gin-washed juniper out of Salilo, I believe, in uh, in in Washington. And then the the coup de gras for us was uh, pairing Montgomery's cheddar, which is a flagship cheddar out of I think cider country in England, and we paired that with our scrumpy, which um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, a scrumpy is more of the the barnhouse bready. Ours is actually not carbonated, so it's it's traditionally so in the, in the West Country. And it just the two of them just were so magical together. So I had you in here a few days back, and you were a guest on my local show. I have a local food show, which I don't think I've ever mentioned on Grape Encounters before, but I do a local food show where we live. And you started to share with me a bit about the common thread between cider and wine. And I was really, you know, frankly, pretty shocked by that revelation because I've talked cider many times. I drink a lot of cider myself. I don't claim to know a lot about cider. But you practically said that cider basically is an apple wine. I and think I, in Germany, it's they call it Apfelwein, which is apple uh, yeah. wine. So there you go. <laughs> and I asked you what the difference was, and we're going to get into that in just a moment, but there aren't really that many differences at all. And I had asked you the, the question, well, why don't we just call it apple wine? And then that's where you pointed out what those differences were. So mm-hmm. I, I really want to get into that. You mentioned something a moment ago, and I want to pass it back to Philip because – You mentioned the UK as being cider country. How popular is cider in Britain? Cider's pretty much found at every drinking establishment that you could you could go to in England, for sure. The part of England that I think Eric was referring to in the West Country, where a lot of our cheeses come from, it's a lot more sort of countryside, it's a lot more rustic. And that part of the country does a lot more of the, of the style of cider that Eric produces. And the name of his cider company, Bristol's, refers to the city of Bristol, which is on that west side of the UK. I think that it's a little bit further ahead than it is in the US. 
less when it comes to the, the craft side of cider. But just the size of this country in comparison, I'm sure the volumes that are produced are probably leaning in the US's favor. So as we see more interest in it, like the craft beer movement here, I think that we'll see a lot more small independent cideries popping up doing more interesting things like Bristol's, as opposed to the larger format six packs across the country, one cider on tap at every bar kind of thing. We'll see a lot more uh, little interesting things popping up for people to try. Eric, how fast is the cider business growing, in your opinion? Or, you know, you probably know realistically just how how big it is. Pretty substantial. Um, I could say this, that my boss, Neil Collins, he and his uh, sister and his wife, they all own Bristol's Cider. And uh, he and his sister are from Bristol, England. And when Neil started making the first ciders for Bristol's, it was back in 1994. So that's quite a long time ago. And, and originally, Neil started making the cider because, for personal consumption reasons, being a West Country man, he couldn't find cider, let alone cider to his tastes, that was uh, available in the U.S. So as a winemaker, and we'll get into this, but um, the similarities allowed him to be able to dabble, and dabble in a way that it wasn't just like a failed experiment at home, like Neil could... With his first cider, it was palatable to, to an extent where it was pretty delicious. And since 1994, I'd say this, Neil started with about 60 gallons, which is, uh, is one wine barrel. And now Bristol's does about 12,000 to 13,000 gallons a year. Wow. So it's a pretty big jump, even though it's taken a few decades. I mean, you got to think, and maybe your listeners know that the area that we all live in is about cumulatively around 100,000 people, maybe, in our county. And we have a lot of different people drinking cider, and that's really, really cool. And it's been able to increase to that level. We're a small American city, if you include our entire county, and and we're able to produce 13,000 gallons of cider. How many cider producers do you think there are just in your area? I would say there's probably up to 10 really high-quality cider producers, and, and I'm sure that there are a few that are just fledgling ones that maybe haven't hit the market yet. It just seems like the Central Coast seems to be, for California especially, a hotbed of cider producers. And we're lucky enough to have quite a lot of great orchards to source from. We're lucky because California tends to grow quite a lot of different fruits. And it'll come back to that wine connection. There's a lot of winemakers on the Central Coast. And as a result, there are people who have either been inspired by Bristol's or or through something else that they've come across in their travels that's caused them to say, I'm going to try this out. And then when they do, they do it with a purpose. And what we're seeing is this really great product coming out of the Central Coast. We just started a Central Coast Cider Festival two years ago, and we're seeing every year more and more producers get involved. Really awesome. Okay, we're going to take a break here for just a second. And then when we come back, I want to just jump right into where cider begins and where wine begins and kind of follow the trail or at least see where they're walking side by side. And then we'll talk about how they part. Okay, fair enough. All right. Hey, my guests are Philip Clark and Eric Fleck here representing the wine business, the cheese business, and of course, cider making. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Remember, as much as you may love wine, it is not the answer to your problems. Unless the problem is you're out of wine. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue right after these important messages. You don't have a problem with that, do you? Did you know that you can visit us in person right in the heart of the Central Coast wine country of California. We can get you a special rate at one of our loveliest hotels, introduce you to some epic wines in person, help you chart out amazing self-guided winery tours, and tell you stories that we're not allowed to share on the radio. 
Okay, that last one was a, a stretch. Here's David. Back with Grape Encounters Radio, and I am so delighted to have, he's really my neighbor. It's Eric Fleck in from Bristol Cider. Just down the street. Just down the street, and these guys are just setting the world on fire. I had him in here for another show that I do, and we were talking about the similarities between wine and cider, and I was sort of like thinking to myself, why have I never done a show on cider? And I think the answer to that is that I consider the two products to be completely different. And after really hearing Eric out, I went, oh, my gosh, this is an epiphany. I'm sure other people had the epiphany well before I did. But, you know, for the regular consumer, I think it would be a great reason if you're a wine lover to go out and discover cider and, you know, make that your mission because, you know, it's all good. And then uh, Eric tells me that his friend Philip Clark is visiting from Portland. And he comes out of the wine business up there. You guys worked together in a Whole Foods market, right? We did. That's mm-hmm. a of time. Incredible. And uh, Whole Foods is going to eventually get gobbled up by Amazon. because <laughs> of what it looks like, right? Yeah, it sounds like it. It's in the process. Does that make your skin crawl or what? I think we're both comfortably we're out we're of detached. Now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> detached. I'm making cider yeah, and wine. Philip is enriching the minds of America. So we're both happy. Philip is from England and is teaching U.S. history. I am indeed. That is <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, totally, I imagine. I was going to say different perspective, but at least maybe it just seen things from a slightly different angle. I think so. I think, and I think that's an important thing. You know, yeah, uh, especially for kids who've come up through the U.S. education system. Unlike myself, just throwing something, throwing a spanner in the works, essentially, is what I've always liked to do. So this is just another way for me to do that. Well, I think what's interesting about it too is that we're more concerned now. I think we have to be more concerned now than ever about you know how other countries see us. Anyway, pour yourself a big glass of wine or cider and then get into that discussion. We're going to get back to cider. All right. So just before the break, I said that we would see where the two products start together. And I I do want to say this, Eric, you've been in winemaking for a long time. You've been in wine sales. You've been a wine broker. You've done it all. You've done it in California. You've done it in Oregon. You've done it in New Zealand. Any place else that I'm forgetting? Also Australia. Australia. Goodness gracious. Anywhere that spoke English and grew wine grapes. Dude, you've got a resume. Wow. Thanks. And spent, what, five years in the service as well? I did. I was a Korean linguist in the Army for five You know what? Let's just for fun, let's just do the rest of the show in Korean. Okay. All right. (laughs) It was a long time ago. There's a guy in the northern part of Korea that we'd love for you to go have a conversation Uh, with. He does not like cider. He doesn't like cider? very often, no. Oh, okay. All right. So let's start the journey. Okay. We know where wine starts in the vineyard. Cider starts in, in the, the orchard. In the orchard, exactly. Okay, um, and now take it from there. So the approach to cider making, it's interesting because you can go different ways about it. And one of those ways is you can buy juice, apple juice, or concentrate from a repository that that's their whole business model is to keep pasteurized refrigerated apple juice. And then it's like a shipped order type deal. Um, what we do at Bristol's and what a lot of other producers that we know do as well is we source from the orchards themselves. And I think that that definitely for us, because we're also winemakers, we have a wine label called Lone Madrone. A fantastic label. Thank you. We, yeah. uh, we do both at the same time all year long. But our approach to cider making is is very much the source material, much like it is with the grapes. That's very interesting because it almost seemed like for a long time to me that the quality of the apple that goes into the cider seemed, I don't want to say unimportant, but less important than the quality of the grapes that went into the wine. Because, I mean, we're so fastidious about how we grow our grapes and make the wine. Is there a difference there? Are we a there little more, be. are we more forgiving when the, it comes to the it, apples? That really 
relies more on the business model of the cider producer. If you're a large uh, macro commercial cider producer, that it doesn't make sense to have it be very focused on certain orchards and certain varieties of apples. It just makes more sense to get as much apple juice as you can, make it into a very replicable product, uh, much like beer. And this is not a negative thing on beer. We're drinking beer, as we talked about earlier. But it's a way to have more consistency. We approach it, and I think a lot of these smaller craft producers, as Philip mentioned earlier, approach it more in a wine focus. The things that set it apart from other areas, other producers, other uh, types of apples, that's what we're focusing on. So you can do one or the other. And, and either way, it works. But, but, but you're going to see... a winemaker is going to be out in the vineyards constantly. Yes. Or at least communicating with the person who's growing the grapes. You need to know what's going on. And trying to manipulate those grapes literally from bud break, even before bud break, to harvest. In the cider world, are you spending as much time out in the orchards? I think it comes down to there's always trust no matter who the the winemaker is. If you're growing your own grapes, yeah, you you can be there every day if time allows, but it really comes down to trust and who the people are that are growing the fruit that you use. For us, the orchards, we check on them just as much as we check with the wine grapes. The orchards that we source from, because we do source from as far north as Northern California, like Sonoma, uh, Santa Cruz, Watsonville, which is very close to Santa Cruz in the mountains, down through the central coast. With the places that are outside of our radius of driving on a daily basis, we do trust the growers quite a bit. And it's through that trust that we know we're going to get the right fruit, the right quality of fruit at the right time. It's going to be picked at the right time. I do all the picking with my coworker Weston here locally. And uh, that, you go out and, and pick the apples? We do. We, uh, Holy smoke. It, it's usually during the summer, and uh, the summers here are pretty intense. But it's great. It's a great opportunity to put our hands on the apples. It makes you feel really connected to the process. And so we spend a day. We'll pick an orchard. We'll bring it in. Apples are a lot more forgiving than wine grapes and that we can keep them in our temperature-controlled cellar for up to two weeks before having to press them. And actually, in some ways, it's a little bit better because we do something called sweat the apples, and that allows for a bit of dehydration. And so the apples will increase the the sugar concentration, which is good because cider tends to be a little bit lower on the alcohol than the wine. So aren't you making cider, though, all year long? We are. And the way that we do that... Yeah, how do you do that? That's that's what I don't get. So that's that's another distinction, too, between the different sizes and and approaches to cider making, we do it more in the wine style in that we everything we pick within a current year is what we get. And we make cider from that juice all year long. And uh, it ferments. At Bristol's, we do a native yeast fermentation. So that just means whatever spontaneous yeast in the cellar or from the orchard starts the fermentation for us. And we're lucky enough to have uh, tanks that have lids that can lower as we make the cider. So we do it in about 400 to 500 gallon batches at a time. And uh, when I say batches, I mean it in a way that it's just that particular bottling or kegging. The juice that is yet to be made into cider is stored under what conditions? It actually becomes cider very quickly because we ferment it with the native yeast. The minute it gets juiced, it probably has a day before it spontaneously starts to ferment. So then you have to stop the fermentation at some point, right? We don't actually. We make a drier style cider. So um, when you drink our ciders, you won't get a really strong perceptible sweetness at all. As a result, the ciders will ferment to dryness and then we store them under uh, conditions where there's no oxygen so that they don't spoil. And then we we uh, do a lot of barrel aged stuff as well, so we are able to keep it for quite some okay, time. Okay, we're going to take a break again, but when we come back, I want to find out where we depart from the winemaking process and what goes on. We're not done. We fermented the cider, right? But now 
there's a lot more that's going to happen. Absolutely. That's where we part company from wine, right? Pretty much, yes. It's but the, otherwise, we, we are doing things exactly the way we make wine for the most part. You pick the fruit, you press it. That's <laughs> so easy. Which raises an interesting question, which I'm going to ask you as well when we come back with more Grape Encounters. And my special guest, Eric Fleck, and we'll call him our co-star, or maybe perhaps best supporting actor, Philip Clark, joining us from uh, Portland, Oregon, right? Mm-hmm. Where we are very proud, by the way, to be on in Hillsboro, which is like right next door to Portland. That's right. Beautiful. All right. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters in just a second. This segment of Grape Encounters is brought to you by my number one wine discovery of 2016, the awesome gold medal winning wines of the Cardello Winery. From the very first sip, you'll understand why these astounding, nicely priced Cardello wines are swiftly becoming a cult classic, just as I predicted. Handcrafted and stunning, you can get yours at CardelloWinery.com. That's CardelloWinery.com. Or find more information at GrapeEncounters.com. Conservative about what he spends on wine, but liberal on how much he pours his friends. Here's your host, David Wilson. Okay, back with Grape Encounters Radio, and we're talking about wine's cousin today. Actually, we're talking about cider made from apples. I don't know if you can make cider from anything else, but we're going to find out from our guest, Eric Fleck. He is here from Bristol Cider. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely fantastic cider house. And I said, he brought his little friend. He's not little, actually. It's uh, Philip Clark. He's taller than me. He comes out of the wine business as well. And nice to have you, Philip. I'm glad you joined the conversation because you know an awful lot about things that I know nothing about. Thank you very much. Especially U.S. history. You're also a teacher. I am indeed. That's very cool. Okay. Where we left it was we have fermented the cider. We've done that the same way that we ferment grapes. There are a couple of distinctions that I think I want to call out. The first is when you crush the cider, as I understand it, you may add other things in there besides apples. We can, yeah. So at Bristol's, we're experimenters for sure. And that starts with my boss, Neil. And he makes it very comfortable for us to push the envelope, the creative envelope and. It's great. You do that with wine in a lot of ways through blending, but with cider, you can do it at all stages. And what I mean by all stages is how you just pointed out. For instance, we have a cider called the Mangle Wurzel. It's actually named after a fodder beet in Europe that they feed to cattle and other livestock. And it's this big, ugly beet. And the reason we call our cider the Mangle Wurzel is because what we do is we co-ferment, I think last year it was about 20,000 pounds of Granny Smith apples from a local orchard with 80 pounds of organic bull's blood beets and some fennel hearts. And what we did, it was a lot of fun for us because we're sitting here at the press and the apples are going up the elevator into the miller and throw a beet on every now and again. You got this like this fresh pumice coming out of the grinder and you're, you're building your cakes. And then all of a sudden this beet comes through and it looks like... Something was just kind of like exploded, and there's just all this red over the fresh Granny Smith. And we co-ferment it. We do that because... Yeah, we hopefully think, somebody's poodle didn't crawl. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, we co-ferment it that way because we feel like it really does integrate the flavors. And so... Yeah, but I mean, look, that seems to me to be incredibly risky. How do you know that's going to work? And how did you come up with that beat? Well, that beat particularly worked out for us because we have some close friends that have an organic farm called Lulu Farms here locally. Sure. And, yeah, know them. And they get in touch with us. Actually, they were just at the Cider House and they said, Eric, how many beets do you want this year? And they plant the beets 
for us, and then probably about six to eight weeks from now, the harvest the beets, bring them over to the cider house. Somebody had to do it first. It was just an idea. We've got yeah. a lot of inventory, a lot of product we do. that you're putting potentially at risk, right? Well, fortunately for us, we have a cider house, and what that does is it allows us to have a tap exposure to where our clientele that come pretty regularly, they'll come in. And they can try something that might be a little bit more off the beaten path uh, as far as ciders go. Notice he said off the beat. Oh, man. I'm on fire. Got that. (laughs) Well, I'm always impressed with people who try things for the first time. Like, I always wonder what the person who ate the first artichoke said. He or she probably picked it up, held it in his hand, and said, hmm, this will be good. <laughs> good. All right. Back to cider. Have you ever put an artichoke in cider? Not yet. No, that's a, uh, kind of a good idea, right? The juices are flowing. So the, for the mango wurzel, the reason that it was even concocted was we were asked to do a breast cancer awareness beverage. And, you know, we are a winery. We could have done rosé. They wanted it to be pink. And Neil, my boss, had said that he had heard of a a beer done with beets back in the old country. And so we said, let's try it with cider. And what we found with the Granny Smith, which is a very fresh, acidic apple, the earthiness of the beets really uh, paired well with it. Nothing overdid it on either side. But what really fit that particular request was that it comes out neon pink. And it is so popular at the Cider House for just the color. That's beautiful. I wonder this about the apples for a second. got to back up a bit. In the wine world, we disclose exactly what the varietal is on the bottle or, you know, you don't have to do that. But generally speaking, it's going to say it helps. this is Syrah or Zinfandel or Chardonnay or whatever the case may be. How important is the varietal of the apple to the consumer, especially who's about to drink your cider? Are they concerned as to whether or not it's a Granny Smith or a Fuji or whatever? I find that not to be the case. What I find to be the case with cider is that people, their main concern is it's sweet. That's the first thing that people will bring up. We do a lot of festivals uh, with with beer festivals typically because the wine crowd has not quite accepted cider into the festival scene, but the beer crowd's totally on board. Well, we're changing that right now. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We're talking to the wine crowd. Cider is right in between, and, and from the government's perspective, we're a winery. So if you produce cider, so we belong in the wine crowd, but we also belong in the beer crowd. We belong in all crowds. What I find, though, is that people have either had a cider that was inherently sweet and that that is their impression of cider in general. Cider is actually, much like wine, a spectrum of sweetness. And what we do is more on the on the drier style side. So I think that we get a lot of like aha moments where the eyebrows raise up. They're like, I had no idea cider could taste like this. So what what is the range of alcohol levels in cider? What's the lowest? What's the highest? I think basically? that you can find some ciders on the market that are down in the 4% mark. It's not typically common if you were able to ferment the cider all the way through as we do. I'd say for us, our average is around 7.5%. So still, you know, roughly half the exactly. the alcohol of a glass of wine. And that's just because apples just don't accumulate the same amount of sugar that grapes do. Oh, in all fairness, though, if I pour a glass of wine, I'm going to pour five ounces, let's say, five mm-hmm. to six ounces. If I drink a bottle of cider or a can of cider, I'm going to drink what? You're going to drink a bit more. 16, we do, 12, 16? We do an English pint or an imperial pint is what it's called. I'm, do Philip, do you know what the, ounces. Yeah, 20 ounces. So we, we have a pretty decent size. Okay, okay so you're going to consume... Like a beer. 
<laughs> yeah, and you're, and you're going to consume it like a beer and you're going to take in as much alcohol or more than a glass of wine. I think that's where the perception changes as to where cider sits on that spectrum. I think with packaging and branding and honestly carbonation, I feel as though most people put cider into the category of beer. Uh, if it's coming in a six pack, it's in a 12 ounce bottle, I drink it cold and it's fizzy, I'm going to drink it like a beer. But when it comes to the actual production method and what's going into cider itself, it's much more like wine. When you're paying attention to one single ingredient that's really carrying the beverage and sort of showcasing that, as opposed to beer where you're, where you're playing with a number of different ingredients to create something, I feel that cider sits more with that wine side. It's very much a branding and packaging thing that, that skews that is, people's that perception. That is really, really well put. That is really well put. I think that is an interesting distinction. I hadn't even considered the fact that it is the packaging and the way the product is presented that pushes it over into the beer side of the aisle. That's very interesting. Yeah. An epiphany <laughs> on Grape Encounters Radio. Okay, so now we've got the fermented juice. Yes. You mentioned Philip Carbonation. I want to say that's what really sets it apart from wine, but then sparkling, sparkling wine wines. is really hot right now. Okay, so what happens next? Well, one small caveat is that there are certain ciders that we leave still, and um, it's it's very much like a wine or an apple wine in that sense. We do one at Bristol's, which we call the Skimmington, and it's that scrumpy style, and it's inspired by the ciders from Neil's homeland and the West Country. That being said... At that point, what we'll do with our, uh, we got your fermented juice, we'll age it sometimes in barrel. We do use some bourbon barrels on some of our ciders as we get them straight from the distillery. There's a little bit of latent bourbon in them and we'll age all these different types of apples in these barrels for up to 18 months. Other barrels that we use are more just your traditional wine barrels. Right now I have a, a cider, which I, I think I'm going to call the class. It's a cider apples. And there's a distinction between that too we can get into it between culinary apples and cider apples. But cider apples aged on peak pool Blanc and Grenache Blanc Lees, and it's in a Russian oak barrel. Really? So we get all winemaker up with this cider, and we'll let things age. And then what we do is when we're ready to make a cider, we'll do a mock blend. So we'll mess around with the percentages, what we like as far as flavors. We're very focused at Bristol's on balance, so acidity, tannin, all the things that you would think of with wine. And then we'll take that cider, we'll blend from either barrels and tanks or a mixture of both or, or just one of each, and we'll put it into a tank, which is called a bright tank, and that's a brewing vessel and that has a lot to do with the carbonation because you have to have a tank that can withstand the pressures and uh, we can carbonate it in that tank to a, a so certain you're, so you're actually adding the carbonation we do on some of our ciders yes that's... so is there a way to create natural carbonation in the same way that we absolutely you know, is, it, is there something similar to method champenois there is with cider I don't think and maybe I'm wrong there might be a producer out there that's doing the method champenois where they're really they're doing the Ritalin and they're doing like the full extensive process for us what we do is more of a beer term it's bottle conditioning. And what we do is we basically add a dosage of a yeast, a finishing yeast, and some sugar access. We use different ones with different ciders. We do one cider where we dry hop the initial cider with uh, English hops, so very uh, very delicate. And then what we do is we use a Saison yeast to do the bottle conditioning. Oh my gosh. I think I'm more confused than when we started. <laughs> this is really, really fascinating. Oh gosh. So glad to have Eric Fleck in here from Bristol Cider and Philip Clark. Oh, He's from everywhere. No, you're really, you don't have a cider affiliation, but you have so much knowledge where cider and wine is concerned. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I had to beg you to go on mic. I was hesitant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then we can't shut you up. It's fantastic. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this.
And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. No, 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 don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Back with Grape Encounters Radio. Man, am I glad we took a commercial break because my head was spinning after the, <laughs> actually the last three segments of the show. We have on today Eric Fleck, who is the cider maker over at Bristol, which is my neighbor, just literally a mile away, probably. Nothing more than that. And Philip Clark, associate from another era in your life, right? That's true. You guys worked together in the wine and beer business, originally at Whole Foods mm-hmm. in downtown Portland? Yep. How cool. I have a lot of respect for Whole Foods, really. Mm-hmm. I think they do a great job, and they do a great job in beer and wine. Let's see what happens if Amazon takes them over. I am not an anti-Amazon person, by the way. No. I love love Amazon. It's wonderful. All right. So we're coming down to the end of the discussion and I am really amazed. I'm really fascinated by what I've learned here today. By the way, if you're listening to this on a radio station rather than a podcast, you can go pick up our podcast at grapeencounters.com or at Apple iTunes, you know, whatever you want to do, because there's so much information here. You might want to listen to this about 12 times because I'm going to have to just to let it sink in. So where do we go from here now? We're just about at the end of the road, right? Yeah, I think since we're focusing on kind of the similarities between cider and wine, at this point, you you focus on the quality of the fruit coming in, just as important as it is with wine. At Bristol's, we're fortunate enough to work with over 60 different varieties of apples. Wow. And I had kind of mentioned a little bit before, but there is a distinction between culinary apples, the types of apples you'd find at the grocery store or your farmer's market, and the more cider apples, which are the, the bittersweets in some cases, very tannic apples, really great for high quality cider making. And we're lucky enough to get access to both. And we've found ways over, well, since Neil started in 94, to kind of fine tune and hone the best way to marry those flavors. And those cider apples don't have to be pretty. Absolutely not. They are ugly. Some of them... They are ugly. I'll tell you what, there's an orchard close by that we're fortunate enough to farm. And these are trees that are probably 60 years old. They're very tall, so they weren't grown for a commercial farm. What I end up having to do, they're on a hill. I have to lean a ladder up against these old trees. The ladder's on a hill, so it's, it's, it's not super sound. I climb up and I pick them, or I have to shake the branch to drop these, these heirloom apples. They'll fall into these star thistles that then I have to put my hand in oh, no. and pull out oh, these God. apples. So I don't care what the apple looks like at that point. It's going into the bin <laughs> and it's turning into cider. Uh, any of those star thistles get in there? We're pretty good about that. We sort them off of our hands. Uh, yeah. One of these days you may look at those and go, this will be good. There you go. He's on fire. Wow. (laughs) Reusing a bad joke. The culinary apples, Mm -hmm. do those ever make it into cider as well? Absolutely. It's just, you know, the typical American story is you start with what you can and you learn from it. And we found a lot of great ways to make delicious ciders from things like Granny Smith. So I know that some of the finest apples in the world come from Washington. Oregon as well? Oregon has a pretty big apple scene. Because I I would think they would be very similar. Mm -hmm. Do you ever import apples from other areas like that and and work with those? We don't because I think, even though I mentioned earlier that we do around 13,000 gallons of 
of cider, we don't need to. We're able to work with enough growers here in California from some awesome, I mean, there are some orchards that we work with in the Santa Cruz Mountains that are over 100 years old. It's a great segue, I think, is uh, we have a cider out right now called NC Squared, and on the front label, it's a bristlecone pine tree. And the reason it is is because a majority of the apples, if not all of them that go into that cider, are heirloom apple trees throughout California. And it's called NC Squared because the man who sources the fruit for us, he's one of two people that I know of in the country that sell very specifically heirloom apple trees, heirloom fruit trees. And his name is Neil Collins, much like my boss, the uh, owner winemaker for Loma Madrone and Bristol's Neil Collins. The two of them met in a uh, no kidding two guys a named doctor's Neil office appointment, and it was a mistake where they both thought they had the same appointment. They just tapped each other on the shoulder, and one said, "I make cider," and the other one said, "I sell cider apples." And so no. the rest is history. And where did that happen? It happened here in uh, Paso Robles. No kidding. Yeah. The, so that one of is, two people he lives here on the Central that, Coast. That you know, <laughs> there are no accidents. I think no, in life, I don't right? Think so he's a great Boy, guy. That really makes you think. Now, in winemaking, when we get to the point where we're getting close to bottling, mm-hmm. we've got a number of options. We can blend things in. In fact, you can blend up to 25% of other stuff in there and still call it a Chardonnay or a and Cabernet when, yeah. Sauvignon. But, so when we say stuff, but, we're But generally grapes. speaking, most of the adjusting that we're going to do is with other varietals and yep. other wines you know, that we've made. In the cider world, you have, I'm guessing, a lot more latitude, do you not, in terms of things that you can There are add? no restrictions, really. It's not yeah. as heavily policed as the wine industry is. So what are some of the funkiest things that you've added in there to take something that wasn't tasting so great and move it into the great column? I think the bourbon barrels that I mentioned before are very distinctive in some of the ciders that we work with. Another thing that we use, as we mentioned before, is hops. At Bristol's, what we do is we get the full hop itself, and we steep it much like a tea, and then we check it over the course of it usually is around two weeks and uh, right when we think it's hopped up enough but not too hoppy we'll rack off the hops so separate them from the cider we also use as i mentioned before the uh, organic beets and fennel that's co-fermented and then that one orchard i was talking about with the star thistles we get pear and quince from that particular orchard and we blend those together Very, very, very interesting. All right, one last question. There's a trend in the U.S. now in the winemaking industry that is really, really far behind Europe. And that is after we crush the grapes, we may use that byproduct to make spirits or even sometimes distill the wines into spirits. Is the same thing happening in the cider world? What do we do with all the leftover pulp and all of that? Not to the extent that it is with wine in the U.S. at least. It's one of our dreams to at some point be able to make, I mean, it's it, we wouldn't call it Calvados because that's what it's called back in France, but yeah. it's much like that. It's an apple brandy. And if you've never had a Calvados, I highly recommend trying one. They're so delicious. Right now, what we do with our, our apple waste is we're fortunate enough that a local rancher comes and picks it up. Right feed it, after to, we're feed done, it to the hogs? Feeds it to the cows. Oh, to the so cows. All of his cattle, they get six bins of apples pretty much twice a week. They should also feed the cider to them. That's yeah. become a fairly common practice now. Leave it out long enough and it, it, it will become cider. <laughs> exactly. All right, last words. Philip, anything you want to add? No, just thank you for letting me be here today. Pleasure. No, thank you for being here. You've added a lot to the conversation. And Eric, let's give a plug for Bristol because your product, as I understand, is available right nationwide it is. for the most we're, part? Uh, even though we started in 94, we're actually right now at a crossroads where we're getting to be a lot more popular. It's a lot of fun. We get people in the cider house here in Atascadero, California. Um, You can look us up at uh, bristolcider.com. 
we're also we're wine people, so we started a cider club, much like a wine club, and you can get all that info at bristolcider.com. Bristolcider.com. Guys, it's been great having you guys here. This Thank has been a much. lot, a lot, a lot of fun, and I think the only thing left to do is to go drink some cider. We're on our way. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters. Hey, thanks for listening today. Thanks to my guests. We will be back here next week at the same time. If you do come to visit us at our Atascadero studio and come to the Grape Encounters Emporium where you can drink all the wines that we talk about on the show and do a lot of fun stuff, I will also personally point you to Bristol and you can take a trek over there, but not before you spend a little time with us. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 